Good morning, Senior Pastor. How are you? Good morning, Pastor O. I'm doing great. God is good all the time. Amen. <laughs> God is good all the time. I was actually, um, in preparing for today, I ran into an article. Um, it's actually from June 23. Third, uh, 1972. Um, it's an editorial in Christianity Today, and it's called "The Lord Is Coming Again." And I wanted to actually read some, um, read an excerpt, you know, a few excerpts from it. Uh, it was quite revealing, and it actually um, made me excited about the coming of the Lord, which is what we're going to be talking about—the second coming of Christ. And it says, uh, when the first Christians finally grasped the fact of Jesus' intended second coming, that knowledge resolved all sorts of perplexities. Uh, Basically, it enabled them to see how God could keep his word in the Old Testament about the Messiah's role. Bible students had previously assumed that the prophets were speaking of one triumphant advent of the Messiah. The prophets had not distinguished what the Christians were now told, that the advent would be in two distinct parts. The first, in humility, to make, a, to make sacrifice for the sins of the world, and the second, in glory, with judgment for unrepentant sinners. The Lord is coming again, the editorial declared. Amen. But many Christians act as if it is important to know and debate the signs that point to his return in their own generation. And I believe this has gotten many into trouble over the years. Does this mean that previous generations in which the Lord did not return had less incentive for holy living? Even if the Lord does not return for 10,000 or 10 million years, or obligations remain the same. Some teach that the Lord may come at any moment, while others say certain events must take place first. What is clear, especially to those of us who have occasion to ride in, to ride in automobiles, is that at any moment we may go to be with the Lord. And then it declared again, and these are just excerpted um, from that uh, one main article. It says, the Lord is coming again. There was a declaration. And it says, let us stress that central fact rather than or differences over details. And far above precision in prophetic detail, let us value obedience to the clear commands of the one who has told us to be faithful servants while we wait for his return. So, Senior Pastor, I thought this was very revealing because it was talking more so about us being faithful Amen. Uh, in, in, in our duties and our responsibilities to God while we wait. Because even though, you know, we're living now, we are not quite sure the day nor the hour. That's right. When all of this will take place. So I just thought it was... Uh, quite interesting, and I wanted to share that article with you. Now, as we look at Revelation 19, verse 11, through chapter 20, verse 6, um, there are three divisions, basically. Um, Revelation 19, verse 11 through 14, talks about Christ uh, returns triumphant. declares that Christ returns triumphant. In Revelation 19, verses 15 through 18, uh, he, he is called the King of Kings and Lord of Lords. And, of course, we're talking about Jesus Christ. And, and finally, in the third division, it talks about Christ's enemies vanquished. Christ's yes. enemies vanquished. And that's found in Revelation 19, verse 19 uh, through 20, verse 6. Um, basically, the statement of, of our faith is that Jesus Christ will return in victory over all evil. That's the hope Amen. That, we are, that we are operating under. Jesus Christ will return in victory over all evil. Revelation 19, verse 11 says, I, John, saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse, and he, meaning Jesus, that sat upon him 
was called faithful and true. And in righteousness, he doth judge and make war. Wow. What a title. Mm. Faithful yes. and yes. true. And I wonder if some of us uh, can even bear that title. He bears the title faithful and true. But how many of us are faithful and true to the calling um, of God? Uh, Revelation is often misunderstood as depicting a a chronology of end-time events. Certainly, it is an account of God's end-time activity. However, it is not always chronologically arranged. Chapters 19 and 20, as we're going to go into record the events that occur at the closing of this present evil age, Galatians Mm -hmm. 1, verse 4, and the introduction of the age of God's rule and reign without the effects or consequences of sin. Man, oh, how I want to see that, right? God's rule and reign without the effects or consequences of sin. Revelation Mm -hmm. 19 reveals the glorious king in a militaristic mode. It also reveals the millennial, meaning thousand, the millennial reign of Christ. This is a literal period where peace reigns on the earth because the prince of peace governs with those who rejected the seduction of the enemies of God. The Lord's Prayer includes petitions which declare, come Come your kingdom, be done your will, as in heaven, also on earth. Matthew 6, verse 10, which is, this was a literal translation. These petitions are fulfilled in this period that we are going to see, or that we're going to study. Of course, these petitions must be fulfilled in our lives every day. We willingly submit our will to his and allow the king to rule and reign over our lives in majesty and power. And I think that's where the word praise comes in. Praise is when, we, when you willingly submit your will to his and allow him to rule and reign over your lives in majesty and power. And, and that is praise, when you recognize his majesty and power and you submit to his authority, and you submit to his power, and you submit to his majesty, that's where praise comes in. So as we move on, um, we will see uh, a little bit more about um, the second coming of Jesus Christ, and we'll be able to see how powerful and how majestic he is or he is going to be, um, especially in, at the end of the age. Um, so at this time, we're going to turn it over to you, Senior Pastor, as you open us up uh, with Christ Returns Triumphant. Thank you, Pastor O, for that powerful introduction. It gives me goosebumps, and every straw up here on my head is standing up. Because this is what we have longed for and waiting for the glorious return of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, returning in triumph, returning in triumph. Amen. And talked about that for many years. That's why we sing the song as we wait for him. Oh, I want to see him, to look upon his face. Well, it's not too long from now, my children. And what is happening here, Pastor O, is that the enemies of God, the enemies, those who are against God and his church, have blasphemed blasphemed him and battered the saints, battered the saints, say many things against the saints. But what is happening here is that the time has come to deal with Satan, the beast, and his kingdoms decisively and definitely. The time has come to deal with that, and that's what John saw. Christ returning triumphantly. Verse 11 says, And I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse, 
and he that sat upon him was called faithful and true. And in righteousness he doth judge and make war. Not a time for peace, but a time for war. His eyes, verse 12, were as a flame of fire, and on his head were many crowns. Remember he had a crown of thorn before? Well, he had many crowns this time. And not only that, but he had a name written that no man knew but he himself. Verse 13, And he was clothed with a vesture dipped in blood. Remember that? That all of that happened on the cross. And we're repeating this again, but this time in triumph. A vesture dipped in blood, and his name is called the Word of God. Now, um, many Pentecostal and Evangelical saints have embraced a pre-tribulation rapture doctrine. What are we saying here? In the return of Jesus Christ in the cloud to resurrect the dead in Christ and rapture the church. Two things, to resurrect the dead in Christ and rapture the church. And you, you might be thinking about that. Those who die in the Lord and those who are in the church and remain, who are faithful, will be raptured. That's what we have preached for many years. Now, this ushered in the tribulation, which is what Daniel talked about, the period of seven years of God's wrath upon sin in the world. This is the time that we talked about a few weeks ago where the seven seals are open according to Revelation 6, um, 18. During, during the, the world, or during this tribulation period, the Antichrist, we have talked about him, the Antichrist arises. And oh, if we could have Brother Davidson preach a message on that, the Antichrist, Satan, the man who comes to say that he's Christ, but he's not belonging to Christ and saying that he is a Christ will arise. At the end of the tribulation will be the battle of Armageddon. And this will be fought when Christ returns to earth, if you look in 1911 to 20. Now, what do we find? This is a long lesson, so we're going to do our best with it. The return of Christ in the clouds and then to earth is known as his second coming. First coming was when he came as a babe wrapped in swaddling clothes and lying in a manger. Um, this one advent will be arrival with two events following. This is a thousand-year period known as the millennial reign of Christ, and then the great right throne judgment. The final scene in this scenario is a revelation, and we talk about that, and I know like Brother Campbell of this, revelation of a new heaven and a new earth. And we know this for sure because he said before one drop or tittle of his word pass, that heaven and earth will pass away. It will be a new heaven and a new earth, and in this new earth will dwell righteousness. No more unrighteousness, no more crooks, nothing at all, but a new earth. Oh, my Lord, I want to be there. How about you? And it is true that we are coming back, but we are not coming back as the... the, um, Jehovah Witness talk about, we are not coming back to this old earth. It will be a new heaven and a new earth. So you might want to write that down. New heaven and a new earth in which dwell righteousness. Now, there may be differences concerning the chronological order, but most agree that these events lead to the close of this age and the beginning of the new era of life as God designed it to be, not anybody else, but as God designed it to be, not Donald Trump, not anybody else, but as God designed it to be. All right. As noted above, chapter 19 is a prelude to the final judgment. It begins, as we have said many weeks before, leading up to this time, with praise and worship to God. Why? Why? Because Babylon is destroyed. 
the praise continues from the angels around the throne, a rejoiner from many voices, the announcement of the marriage supper of the Lamb, the bride, which is the redeemed, is arrayed appropriately, linen and fine garments. The supper begins in verse 5, but is not consummated until the descent of the New Jerusalem in chapter 21. And consummated there, if you want to, two people get married, and they, they, the marriage is consummated when they come together. Well, this is what will happen. The supper begins in verse 5, but is not consummated until the descent of the New Jerusalem. John saw it coming down from heaven, chapter 21. Surprisingly, the bridegroom appears in military garments, not the traditional wedding apparel, an ornamental turban crown or headdress and marriage robe. When you see that, um, sometimes both parties, the groom and the, the bride, well, the bride especially, is dressed in white, reminiscent of his baptism. The heavens open as an act of divine revelation. And Christ is sitting on a white horse of conquest or victory. A white horse in victory. Christ's character is revealing his covenant name mentioned in 19.11-13. to 13. The first name attributed to him in this parage is faithful and true. In contrast to Satan, who methodology, methodology is deceit. Christ is true to his word and promise. As soon as he is, he is a warrior judge. And I want you to know that he is a warrior judge. But his motivation is zeal for righteousness. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done. His righteousness will be done on earth. He is coming in judgment to execute it, but always coming in righteousness. Not a desire for power. That's not what he's coming from because all power belongs unto him. Righteousness means legitimacy and right relationship with God. He is conducting or initiating, making a war. And this is a just war, not an unjust war, but a, a just war executed in righteousness because he's righteous. So everything that is done is done in righteousness, and this is commissioned by the Father um, because he has mercy has been extended and judgment now followed. Let me say that again. Mercy has been extended. His mercy is now. His mercy is now. Mercy drop round us are falling, but for that blessing we pray. We plea. Mercy has been extended and judgment now follows. No more time to repent. The time to repent is now. He has given us mercy, extended mercy to us. The time for judgment is coming. So everybody listen. Judgment is coming. His eyes deeply discern our motives, judge correctly, and reflect his glory. He wears many crowns of royalty. A ruler or king was entitled to wear a diadem for each kingdom he controlled. The second man attributed to him is one that can be seen, a name written, but not understood by anyone but God himself, re reflective of his power. A name unequaled by any other name. His garments are received from the Father and are dipped in blood. Now, Christ's blood brought us life. Those who reject his blood shall never have life. Let me say that again, or I feel goosebumps again. Those who reject his blood shall never have life. Christ loved us so much that he gave himself for us. He shed his blood for us. And if you don't believe that, if you reject him, if you reject that he shed his blood for you, you will never have life. The third attributed to Christ in Revelation 19 is the word of God. The word made flesh and dwell among us. The divine promise to us that all aspects of the word will be fulfilled completely. And number three, our personal guarantee that God will protect us. And I'm not going to spend many times on that because we have said that over and over again. 
he is with us and he will protect us as the end covers her ticking. Um, John Avery says, faithful and true is connected with another name. The other name is the Amen. To say Jesus is the Amen means that he confirms and establishes the will of God. Let me say that again. Faithful and true is connected with another name, the Amen. The, to say Jesus is the Amen means that he confirms and establishes the will of God. Now, he's coming with armies. So that's what we find. Not one, but armies. Armies from the east, west, the north, and the south. In other words, from the four corners of the earth. And the armies which were in heaven followed him upon white horses, clothed in fine linen, white and clean. Behind them is a mighty host when he's coming. The armies of heaven dressed in fine linen, dazzling, white and clean, riding white horses. Many commentators view the riders as the martyrs who have laid down their lives, like Paul and Peter and John the Baptist and, 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 and so on, Elijah, Elijah, those who have laid down their lives for Christ, the redeem of Christ, or the angelic host, they will be coming behind them in a mighty... Can you imagine that? Can you see that with your spiritual eyes? Have you ever seen a battle? And whoever is leading the charges at the front and the army beside them and behind them, that's how the scene is going to be in heaven. Now, um, regardless of what you believe, this is stunning, majestic, and powerful. Stunning, majestic, and powerful. They have been identified, clothed, commissioned, sanctified, and empowered for the task at hand. They have been identified, clothed in their garment, commissioned to carry out the will of God, sanctified and empowered for the task at and they can't lose. And they stand ready for battle. The armies participate in, but will not win the battle through their own ability of power. Notice. They have no weapons. <laughs> they don't fight with weapons. The weapons are for warfare. They are not carnal, but they are mighty through God. Power belongs to and emanates from God. Power belongs to God. He told Peter, put up your, your sword. You don't have to fight with it. They are not coming with sword. They are coming with power because Christ has the power. All he has to do is blow one breath and everything stops and everything falls. Adrian Rogers said, he came the first time to die. He came the first time to die. He's coming again to raise the dead. When he came the first time, they questioned whether he was king. Are thou the king of the Jews? They questioned whether he was king. The next time, the next time his second coming, the world will know that he is king of kings and lord of lords. Every knee shall bow and every tongue shall confess that he is lord. The first time he wore a crown of thorns, the next time he will be wearing a crown of glory. Oh, don't that make you want to say hallelujah? The first mm. time. As they put on his head a crown of thorns, the next time he will be wearing a crown of glory because he will not be a victim. He will be the victor. The first time he came in poverty, baby born in a manger, wrapped in swaddling clothes, lying in a manger. But the next time he's coming in power, Amen. The first time he had an escort of angels who said, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good tidings of great joy, which shall be to all people. The next time Jude saw this, 
he will come with 10,000 of his saints. Read it in Jude. Jude said that he will come with 10,000 of his saints. The first time he came in meekness. He's coming again in majesty. Amen. Amen. Praise the Lord. Pastor Ho, he's coming back, not as a baby in a manger, but as king of kings and lord of lords. And I know you're itching to take that part. So the warrior king. Amen. Amen. Thank you, Senior Pastor. King of kings and lord of lords. That's what has been ascribed to him. King of kings and lord of lords. The ultimate title, meaning that he is king of all kings and kingdoms. And he is Lord of all lords and Lord of everything. Amen. Uh, So in verse 15 through 16, we find that he's called the warrior king. And verse 15 says, And out of his mouth goeth a sharp sword, that with it he should smite the nations. And he shall rule them with a rod of iron. And he treadeth the winepress of the fierceness and wrath of Almighty God. And he hath on his vesture and on his thigh a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Verse 15 reveals two aspects of Christ's role. First, he is judge. Second, he is shepherd. He is the judge from whose mouth proceeds a sharp sword. This is consistent with his name as the word of God and his role as judge. And we actually yes. find in, uh, in, in John chapter 1, verse 1, I think we are... Uh, talked about it briefly a few weeks ago. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Speaking of Jesus uh, right there. This battle will not be fought with military weapons, um, but through the spoken Word. God spoke creation into existence, and Christ will speak an end to the Antichrist reign and rebellion. Wow. Christ will speak an end to the Antichrist reign and rebellion. Antichrist, anti-meaning against, anything that is against Christ, anything that is against God, anything that is against the word of God. Christ will speak an end to anything that is against him. This reveals that the only weapon he needs is his word. He doesn't need anything else. You know, we often think about David, how he was putting on all his armor, and he said, no, 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 I don't, I don't need all this stuff. I, I need to use what I have in my hand. And, and, and Christ is going to carry out um, and, and put an end to uh, the reign of the Antichrist with just a spoken word. Second, he also rules as the shepherd with the unbreakable staff, rod of iron. Um, the shepherd's staff served two purposes. The first, it was a weapon of protection used to fight off any attackers of the sheep. The second, it was used to rescue any errant sheep and guide the sheep in the direction the shepherd knew was best for them. Judge and shepherd reflect two complementary aspects of Christ's nature. Each is governed by the other. So he's not only judge, but he is also shepherd and vice versa. You know, the psalmist talked about it. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. Um, It's a directive um, that the shepherd must take care of the sheep. Um, Written on his garment and draped across his thigh is a third name, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Some view this as a banner hanging down where a sword would normally hang. Regardless, 
it clearly identifies another aspect of his identity and nature. Unlike earthly kings like Nebuchadnezzar, who was identified as a king over the kings of his time, Christ is the king over every king who has ever reigned. Let me say that again. Christ is the king over every king who has ever reigned. And not only is he the king, he is master over any master throughout history, including the Antichrist and his cohorts. All rulers, governments, principalities, and powers, we, we, we learned about principalities and powers putting on the whole arm of God in Ephesians 6, right? It says all rulers, governments, principalities, and powers, human and spiritual, are subject to, to Christ, right? Everything, everything you can think of, every kind of government, every kind of principality, every kind of power, that word all, all, Every kind of ruler, right, is subject to Christ. Um, if we look at Philippians chapter 2, verse 9 through 11, uh, Paul declared, Therefore God also has highly exalted Jesus and given him then a name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow of those in heaven and of those on earth, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. There is definitely an awe and reverence to the power of Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection that cannot be ignored. He is king, uppercase, of kings, lowercase, and Lord, uppercase, of lords, lowercase. Uh, Brian Harris says, as king of kings and lord of lords, he is more than capable of taking care of all your needs. That just jumped out when I was reading it, right? If we declare that he is king of kings and lord of lords, then we must understand that he is more than capable of taking care of all our needs, right? He's able to take care of all our needs according to his riches in glory. Uh, Then in verse 17 through 18, we find um, it says, "And, And I saw an angel standing in the sun, and he cried out with a loud voice, saying to all the fowls that fly in the midst of heaven, Come and gather yourselves together unto the supper of the great God, that ye may eat the flesh of kings and the flesh of captains and the flesh of mighty men and the flesh of horses and of them that sit on them and the flesh of all men, both free and bond, both small and great. And again, you know, when you go through uh, the, the book of Revelation, it, it, it uses, John uses quite a bit of, of imagery, um, um, undertones so that you can kind of see exactly what's going on. You can imagine, you can think about, you can reflect on what he's trying to say. This section details preparation for the final defeat of the Antichrist in spectacular imagery. An angel is silhouetted against the sun and calls the vultures, the fowls, to assemble for the supper of the great God. This is not the marriage supper of the Lamb. It is a feast for the vultures which shall gorge on the flesh of those who oppose God. Um, A.B. Simpson says we must learn to live on the heavenly side and look at things from above, to contemplate all things as God sees them, as Christ beholds them, overcome sin, defies Satan, dissolves perplexities, lifts us above trials, separates Mm -hmm. us from the world, and conquers fear Fear of of death. death. (laughs) Wow, what an awesome statement. And, you know, we must learn to live on the heavenly side. 
I love that part. We must learn to live live on the heavenly side. Finally, um, Christ's enemies vanquish. Senior pastor. Amen. Amen. We're talking now about Armageddon. You have heard that word over, perhaps from you were a young child. You have been hearing that. My friend, it's going to be true. The battle, and it's called the battle of Armageddon, right? Um, where Christ's enemies are destroyed. They're vanquished, according to Revelation 19, um, to the end, and chapter 20 to verse 6. Uh, John says, And I saw the beast, Satan, and the kings of the earth, and their armies, the dictators, the ungodly Jesus, haters. I saw the beast, Satan, and the kings of the earth, those who set up themselves as kings, common K, but we know that he's Lord of lords, and he's king of kings. And I saw the beasts and the kings of the earth and their armies gathered together, not to make peace, not to sign a peace treaty, but to make war against him that sat on the horse. Remember, we just said he's coming on a white horse and against his army. And the beast was taken, Satan was taken, and with him, the dictators, the ungodly Jesus haters, the prophet that wrought miracles before him. Now I want to pause here because it's not every miracle or everything that you see comes from God. That's why I'm very, very careful who lay their hands on me, who put their hand on my head, I don't allow much people to do that unless I feel in my spirit that is coming from God. And I know people prophesy and tell you a whole lot of stuff. I have on my phone right now every day this, this psyche, this woman prophesying things and I must buy this gold necklace and this gold charm <laughs> and so and so is going to happen to me. And I said, wait a minute here. If I serve God and this is going to happen, God can do it. He don't need nobody to come and tell me that. He will do it because he's God and I'm his child. So be careful of the miracles that you look at. And some people believe in this psyche. I know the Lord has people that he revealed things, so I'm not taking that away from them. But you must discern, be a discerner of what is happening because some miracles that people are telling you about not no go so it comes from the devil right, but the prophet that wrought miracles before him with which he deceived them that had received the mark of the beast and you heard about that as, as well the mark of the beast where when the church is taken away and those who are left here who never believe in Christ, that um, they, they will be forced to take the mark of the beast and you can't buy nor sell without that mark. And it's, it's almost coming. I have read where it has started already, somewhere in Europe, where they're putting the chip in people's palm. And when you go to the bank and so all you have to do is scan that. Be careful of that. All right? But those that receive the mark of the beast and then that worship his image. These both were cast alive into a lake of fire burning with brimstone. But they cannot die. The fire is burning. But they will not die. And the remnant was slain with the sword. Those who were left from Satan's army were slain with the sword of him that sat upon the horse, which sword proceed out of his mouth. Remember we're saying that they won't have physical weapons, but the Lord's word is so powerful that all he has to do is pit out the word and that all of them and all the fowls that were filled with their flesh. The Antichrist, 
the Antichrist, which was the beast, the kings of the earth and the armies, gathered to engage the king and his armies. And the beast and the false prophet are violently seized, taken and thrown alive into a lake of fire burning with brimstone. Jack Kelly said, in a fulfillment of Psalms 2, 1 to 6, that's unbelievable. In its arrogance, the people of earth prepare to take on the Messiah and his heavenly army. But their leaders, the Antichrist and his false prophet, are immediately captured and thrown live into the lake of fire. The massive army that had followed them on this suicidal mission are slain by nothing more than the word of the Lord's mouth. See how powerful our God is? And their bodies devoured by the bird. Now Satan will be buying according to verse 1 of chapter 20. The angel came down from heaven having the key of the bottomless pit and a great chain in his hand. And he took hold on the dragon and the old serpent. Satan is called the old serpent. And bound him a thousand years and cast him into the bottomless pit and shut him up and set a seal upon him that he should deceive the nation no more till the thousand years shall be fulfilled. And after that, he must be loose for a little season. Now, the events of chapter 20. The angel forcibly seizes, laid all of Satan in prison him for a thousand years so that the, chap- the character and nature of the one seized is not missed by the reader of Revelation. First, he's called the dragon who stood in front of the radiant woman, the redeemed, to kill Christ at his birth. And if you watch the movie, you will see that devil roaming the corridors of heaven as he winch in pain and um, ready to kill him but couldn't. The resurrection was the public triumph of Christ's power over physical and spiritual death. Up from the grave, he arose with a mighty triumph for his soul. Second, the ancient serpent who led Adam and Eve into sin. You remember that in Genesis? Forced Adam and Eve to sin when he told the woman, if you eat of this, you shall not surely die, but you shall be like God. And what was the desire of the devil here was to destroy God's plan for humanity. Yet the lamb was slain from the foundation of the world. The lamb, Jesus, was slain. Now behold the lamb. Third. He is the devil, the slanderer of our false accuser, whose access to God was terminated through the cross. Finally, he is Satan, the adversary of God and his people. Satan don't like you because you're trying to do what is right. Satan don't like him. He was kicked out of heaven because he tried to make himself a little God and wanted to be greater. He was the songwriter in heaven, or the songster, the praise and worship leader in heaven, but he wouldn't obey God, and he was kicked out of heaven, and he came down here and tried to interfere, interrupt the plans of God. Right now, throughout the scripture, Satan is placing chains, and under the control of an angel, fulfilling the plan of God. This proves, that in all these attempts to interrupt the plan of God, he failed. His carnal sacraments, what he offered you, is the lust of the flesh and the lust of the eye and the pride of life. Let me say that again. What he's offering us is his carnal sacrament, which is the lust of the flesh and the lust of the eyes and the pride of life. They are just illusions and lies that he's telling you. He's securely placed in the pit for a thousand years. And the angel placed a seal upon him. Amen? Locked in abyss. Even Satan knows that he's not his own, but is subject to the king. Someone has correctly noted that you can say that, you can say what you will about the devil. But the devil is God's devil. He can go no further nor do more than God allows. And the time will come when he will answer to God. The time will come when he will answer 
to God. And Pastor, how are you going to take the mini little rain? The final outcome of the battle of Armageddon is assured. Jesus is winning. He is Lord. He is risen from the dead. And somebody said, we'll bring forth the royal diadem and crown him Lord of Lord. He will be crowned as Lord of Lord. And as, as I said before, every knee shall bow. Hitler. Hitler will bow. Selassie will bow. All the great men who set up themselves will bow and every knee shall bow and every tongue shall confess. Saints, we need to be ready for that. What an exciting time in Scripture. What an exciting time at the end of our journey. What an exciting time when we see Jesus come in the clouds of glory to execute judgment upon the land. And those of us who are saved don't have to worry about that. Those of us who are saved, keep your testimony. Stay in Christ. Don't allow the devil to take away your testimony or your song. But stay in Christ. Times are hard. Things get hard. Sometimes we don't know if we're coming or going. But stay in Christ. Stay in the hallowed palm of his hand. Because at the end of the journey, we will hear, well done, thou good and faithful servant. Tell us about this millennial reign, Pastor. And the millennial reign, um, just to be fair to to the text, there there are some um, some other interpretations out there. But this is what, as as I go through, this is what we we believe. Um, you, you may hear um, premillennial, amillennial, postmillennial, but um, we're just going to kind of go through. Um, we believe in premillennialism, um, so this is what we're, we're going to do. We're going to kind of go through very quickly, and then we're going to bring it to a conclusion. I, I'm, I'm trying to <laughs> to rush through this as quickly as possible. Verse 6 says, blessed and holy, and this is verse 6 of, cha- of, of Revelation chapter 20. Blessed and holy is he that hath part in the first resurrection, on such the second death hath no power. But they shall be priests of God and of Christ and shall reign with him a thousand years. Um, Another vision is introduced and it says, And I saw, in verse 4, which is separate from, um, yet connected to the binding of Satan, um, the millennial reign does not begin because the devil is bound. The devil is bound, so God's plan for the millennial can millennial reign can begin. Now John saw thrones whose occupants have been given the right to basically govern and judge. The exact identity of those who sit on the thrones um, is de- is debatable. Um, some limit them to those who were martyred. Some suggest. These are the thrones of the apostles. Others view these as the saints who will judge fallen angels. However, Revelation 20 verse 4 reveals the number is quite large. The souls of those who were martyred because of their testimony are clearly present. Also, the Greek makes it clear that everyone who would not bow to the beast and who rejected his mark is present also. Now, verse 5 reveals that all the righteous dead have been resurrected. Therefore, it seems likely the thrones are for all the redeemed, whether apostles, saints, or martyrs. All the promises of judging and ruling to each of these groups are fulfilled in the millennial reign with Christ. Those who are part of the first resurrection, in verse 6, receive one of the seven blessings pronounced in Revelation. This is a real, physical, bodily resurrection of the righteous dead, not just a spiritual resurrection as some declare. These are blessed because they are free from the 
threat and power of the second death. For over Amen. these, it has no authority. In the Old Testament, the idea of blessing was God bending down to our level to commune with us and impart his provision to us. These resurrected ones are also holy, which speaks of relationship. If we are holy, we are whole in our relationship with God. Let me say that again. If we are holy, we are whole, W-H-O-L-E, in our relationship with God. It is not a part-time relationship or a one-sided relationship. And some of us, you know, when we get into relationships, right, some may say, oh, I'm doing all the work, I'm doing all the calling, I'm doing all the, you know, all of the the purchasing, I'm doing all of this, and sometimes it feels like a one-sided relationship because one party is doing more work than the other or contributing more to the relationship than the other person. But this is not a part-time relationship with God or a one-sided relationship. It is a covenant relationship that allows us to participate in and continually be transformed by the character and provision of God. In fact, we could actually look at it and say that God is really doing most, if not all, of the work. This makes us distinctive from the world. Holiness is, first and foremost, the perfect or complete love of God. God's essential character is love, life, and holiness. And I, and I like that. Love, life, and holiness. So love instead of hate, life instead of death, holiness instead of impartiality. These three primary characteristics are interconnected and revealed in the character of the righteous dead. These resurrected ones are also priests of God and of Christ. This is not Mm -hmm. a restoration of the Levitical priesthood and sacrificial system as we see in the Old Testament, right? For this is clearly condemned in the New Testament, and we'll find that in Galatians 4, verse 9 through 10. One sacrifice, Jesus Christ, has been offered for the sin of humanity. One sacrifice, Jesus Christ, has been offered for the sin of humanity. And his sacrifice is eternally efficacious or effective, right? Meaning that it meets all the requirements. Basically, it meets all the requirements. The only remaining sacrifices God desires are mercy, living sacrifices, and the sacrifice of praise, right? We bring the sacrifice of praise into the house of the Lord. This is a spiritual priesthood related to the third aspect of the blessing. These reign as royalty with Christ for 1,000 Years Now, Alan Redpath says the immense step from the babe at Bethlehem to the living, reigning, triumphant Lord Jesus, returning to earth for his own people, that is the glorious truth proclaimed throughout Scripture. As the bells ring out the joys of Christmas, may we also be alert for the final trumpet that will announce his return when we shall always be with him. Now, in conclusion, the enemies of Christ are certainly determined, but decisively defeated. The Antichrist and his forces seek power and dominion. Let me say that again, because that's what drives them, power and dominion. The Antichrist and his forces seek power and dominion but will encounter the triumphant king. Satan's future is sealed. This is what ought to get us really happy. Satan's future is sealed. You know, we're, we always talk about what a day that will be when my Jesus I shall see when I look upon his face, the one who saved me by his grace, right? So Satan's future is sealed. 
those who believe his lies will suffer his fate unless they accept the continued call to repentance from God. Jesus died to bring life, not death, right? I have come that he might have life and have it more abundantly. Satan comes to bring death, not life, right? The thief comes to steal, to kill, and to destroy. We've heard this before. John wrote about it. This is the message of the church to those in need and eternal burial. Now, uh, God's wrath will be poured out in judgment and war upon godless and rebellious people. The one who executes this judgment is none other than the Lord Jesus Christ at his glorious second coming. He appears in the majesty of a judge and a mighty warrior. This fact is being ignored. Yes, Jesus embodied love and grace, but he is also a judge and a mighty warrior. He will execute judgment on those that are um, diametrically opposed to his act of mercy and his truth. And the world is ignoring this. The world, many churches you go to, all they talk about is the love of Jesus. God loves, God loves, God cares, God loves. But they, they reject or don't speak about the judgment of God. And I believe that's why sometimes we're finding ourselves um, in, in, in trouble because many, I would say many churches now are falling to that same fate where they're preaching the love of God, which is great, preaching that God is love. That's wonderful. But we also, mm-hmm. you know, we are also uh, obligated to tell our congregations that God is also a God of judgment because he is true he cannot alter the holy divine standards which condemn sin heaven is at war with iniquity heaven is at war with iniquity and divine justice is at enmity with falsehood and rebellion so christ goes forth to make war against a world in rebellion and senior pastor we see this world in rebellion, their their you know their their forces of evil coming out of the woodworks. You see them daily, whether it be through the news, whether it be in other parts of the world, or sometimes even in our own communities and neighborhoods. We're seeing the forces of evil coming out, um, showing themselves even in the day. They don't care about the night anymore. Oftentimes you'll see evil at night. Now they're coming out in the day. But Christ goes forth to make war against a world in rebellion. And he will win. He will win. He is the victor. He is victorious. And because he is victorious, we can walk in victory. Just like Tom Stewart says, again, the final outcome of the battle of Armageddon is assured. Jesus will win. Amen. Jesus will (laughs) win. Senior Pastor, if you can, just close us out and and pray for all those who don't have that covering and don't have that hope. If you can, just pray for them uh, so that they can walk in victory. Well, two things here from what you said that we need to look at closely, Pastor O. And um, John saw thrones. John, in his vision, saw thrones whose occupants have been given the right to govern and judge. Now, those are, that is for those who are faithful, those Amen. who work. And, you know, it doesn't matter what aspect of the work you do. We are the occupants who have been given the right to govern and judge. If you haven't heard it, when I was at Bible school, that's what they told us, that business is going to go on in heaven when the thousand years when the reign is set up, that he will have thrones, John saw thrones, 
whose occupants have been given the right to govern and judge. Could you be one of those sitting around that throne, judging and governing the aspect of work that will be assigned to you? These are those who have came through great tribulation and have watched their robes in the blood of the Lamb. And he will say, well done, thou good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over a few things. I will make you ruler over many. That's what this part is saying. I will make you ruler over many. So work. It might seem like nobody cares. It might seem like um, nobody is saying thank you. It might seem like we're not, you know, giving you, you don't have a cheerleader's crowd or something like that. But this is what will happen on that day. Second part that, that got to me, Pastor O. The redeemed do not fear death, do not worship false God, and remain true despite the circumstances. The redeemed do not fear death. And um, I I said in this pandemic, I see so many Christians who are afraid to die. And I'm not saying that you should go stand in the road before a car and be killed or jump off a bridge and get drowned. I'm not saying that. But I'm saying that we, we are not afraid of death. If it comes that we have to stand up for the gospel and stand up for right, don't be worried about death because the one who gives you life is Jesus Christ and he holds that. He took the keys of death and the grave, death and hell. So the redeemed do not fear death, do not worship false God. We should be ready to die for the cause of God any time. Do not worship any false God. Now make anybody word anything against your faith. Remain true and faithful. Know right from wrong and stand up for your principle and remain faithful despite your circumstances. All right, don't make anybody buy you out. Don't sell out, but stand up for Christ. Therefore, these live and reign with Christ for the thousand year period. May the Lord bless you and I hope we have been in Revelation for a while and Daniel and I hope that you have gotten something from these scriptures. They said that Revelation is the hardest book to understand but I hope that your eyes have been opened up. I hope that we have whetted your appetite. We didn't say everything because we don't have time for that but you should go from here now study and see what it is saying and apply it your life. Let us pray. Everybody, if you will bow your heads and lift up your faith to heaven and let us ask God to have mercy on those who have not yet said yes to him, those who have not yet accepted salvation, not yet accepted him as Lord and King of your life. And because you have accepted him, it's not saying that you should sit down and just jump and shout and do nothing. No, bring somebody else. Tell somebody else about the love of Jesus Christ. Father, we bless your name today. We just glorify you for all that you have done for us, for all that you mean to us. And, oh God, as we studied the word today, where you are coming back to judge the world, you are coming back as our Lord, and as our Savior, because you gave your life over 2,000 years ago, and you're coming back to take revenge for your son's blood. Help us to be ready, Lord. Help us to share your goodness. Help us to shine like the sun. Help us to inspire somebody else to accept you as Lord and King. Oh, help us never to forget that you are with us all the time. And every time, and help us to sow seeds of kindness in the heart of others. May your blessing be with us always, Lord. And now we say, may the peace of God, which passeth all understanding, may the fellowship of the Holy Spirit, the Comforter, rest, remain, and abide with us now and forever and until you come. We pray for those who are not saved today. Lord, have mercy upon them and help them to accept you. We pray for the sick today. We pray for those who are sad. We pray for those who have lost the love. We pray for those who have turned their backs on you. Oh God, 
You want everyone to be saved. Oh, God, and that's why you send your son to die for us. Have mercy upon us today and help us, Lord, that we will do everything that lies in our power to make it home to glory because great things are waiting for us. Oh, God, we look to thee from whence cometh our help and we bless your name today and we say, Bless the Lord, oh, my soul, and all that is within us. Bless your holy name. We thank thee today. Bless us as we impart the word, oh, God, and we pray that we too will see your face. Bless us, Lord. Keep us from the evils of this world and help us, Lord. Oh, we want to see you to look upon your face, there to sing forever of your saving grace. On the streets of glory, may we lift our voice, tears all past, home at last, ever to rejoice. We bless you today, and we say thanks be to God who giveth us the victory through our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And let the church say amen and amen.